You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Katherine Russell, Ohio, USA. Astounding Stories 15, March 1931, by Various. When the Mountain Came to Miramar, by Charles W. Diffin, Part B. There was the casket, gray and lusterless, on its low stone base. Its cover, like the others, stood erect, and above the nearer edge an arm was raising. But it was a white arm, and it ended in a slim white hand. Its rounded softness held in clear outline against the background of gray, until the arm fell that the hand might grip the metal edge. Gary's eyes held in wondering fascination upon those slender white fingers. The hand of a woman, a girl. What marvel of miracles was this? He held his silent pose while he stared at the face that appeared before him. It was milk-white against the dull gray metal beyond, the white of death itself, until returning circulation brought a flesh of pink that crept slowly to the rounded cheeks. Dark hair cascaded about the shoulders to mingle with a lacy veil of golden threads. A film of golden lace wrapped about her. Her robes had gone to dust, vanished with the vanished years, and only the threads of gold with which the robe was shot remained, a futile concealment for the slim white of her shoulders, the soft curves of rounded breasts. But Gary's eyes were held by the eyes that looked and locked with his. Dark eyes, deep and steady, yet glowing softly with the wonder of this awakening. Windows, crystal clear, through which shone softly a light that filled him through and through. Alluring as was the rounded whiteness of the form so thinly veiled, it was not this, nor the childlike beauty of the face that held him spellbound. Gary Connell's only love had been the desert— and now he was filled and shaken by the glamour from within these thrilling eyes. A rasping word made echoes in the silence, and Gary saw the girl's eyes widen as she turned them upon the black one who had spoken. He saw her face lose its color and go dead white, and plainly her wide eyes showed the fears that swept in upon her with returning remembrance. Gary followed her gaze to the wild figure whose slitted eyes glittered in savage triumph and possessiveness, at the white beauty of the trembling girl. The lean figure spoke again in that rasping, unintelligible voice. He addressed the girl now, and the tone sent a strange prickling of animosity through every fiber of the watching man. The black one took one stride forward. The girl, in a flash of white and gold, sprang from her resting place to take shelter behind the high casket. Her eyes came back to Gary's, and the call for help, though voiceless, was none the less real. Then her pale lips moved, and she called to him with a clear voice that uttered unknown words. Gary came from the spell that bound him, and with a quick rush made between her and the advancing man. He landed tense and crouching, and his voice was hoarse with excitement when he spoke. "'That'll be all from you,' he told the black one. His words could mean nothing to the savage, but the tone that rang through them in his crouching ready pose must have been plain. The inky face beneath the high-pointed dome of head was twisted with rage. The eyes glared at this being who dared to oppose him. But the black one paused, then stepped backward to the casket where he had been. Gary retreated a few slow steps to the end of the metal box that sheltered the girl. 
"'Can't you understand me?' he asked. "'Am I dreaming? What has happened? Who are you, and who is this black beast? What does it all mean?' Again he was sure that mere speech useless, but he felt that he had to speak, to say something, anything, to prove the reality of his own waking self and of the wild nightmare experience. He saw the crouching girl rise to her full height. He saw the movement of her hand as she swept the dark hair away from her face, and the film of gold lace clung closely about her as she came to his side. One hand was outstretched to rest light and cool upon his forehead. He heard her voice, so soft and liquid yet so charged with terror. She spoke meaningless words and phrases, but at the touch of her hand upon his face he started abruptly. Did the words themselves take on meaning and coherence, or was it something within himself? Gary could not have told, but with the startling clarity of a radio switched full on, he got the impress of her thoughts, and his own brain took them and put them into words that he knew. "'You will help me. You will save me,' the words were saying. "'You are one of us, I know. You are a stranger, but your skin is white. You are not of the tribe of Horab.' Gary was motionless and listening. He knew he was sensing her thoughts. She was communicating with him by some telepathic magic. And he knew, as he caught the words, that Horab was the black one there before him, reaching and feeling within the casket where he had slept, Horab, a savage king of a savage land. "'He captured me,' the words continued in breathless haste. "'I am from Zahn. Do you know the good land of Zahn? I am Lura.' Horeb captured me, carried me here to this island. It was yesterday he brought me here. He put me to sleep, and he put his men to sleep, hundreds of his chosen warriors. He worked his magic, and he said we would sleep for one hundred summers. But it was yesterday, and now you will save me. My father is a great man. He will reward you. The sentences flashed almost incoherently into his mind, but ceased at a sound and stirring from the room at their backs. Gary needed a moment for the substance of the message to register. He had heard it as truly as if she had spoken. Horab had captured her. Yesterday! And his own lips, that had been loose with astonishment, closed to a grim smile. Yesterday! She thought it was yesterday that her long night had begun. Did Horab know the truth? Gary was suddenly certain that he did. Horab's plans had miscarried. He could not know how far in a distant past was the day when he had placed himself and this girl in their caskets, safe in their mountain tomb. Only an instant for these thoughts to form, then his eyes were steady upon the tall savage who had found what he sought in the big metal case. Horab, king of a vanished race, turned now with a heavy scepter in his hand, and its jeweled head flashed brilliantly as he raised it high in air and shouted an echoing command into the room. A white hand was tugging at Gary's shoulder, a soft body clinging close, to turn him where new danger threatened. The other caskets. He had forgotten them, and he saw the nearer ones alive with struggling forms. A black man-shape, with a sullen animal face and pointed head, came slowly erect and staggered upon the floor. Another, and another. There were scores of the black naked men who scrambled from the nearer caskets and swayed drunkenly upon their feet. Gary stood tense, his mind a chaos of half-formed plans. This one brute he might handle, but the whole tribe? That was too large an order. 
yet he knew with an unshakable conviction that he would carry this girl from their evil clutches or die in the trying. Feminine charms had failed to interest Gary in that world outside, but now the message of these soft eyes, the appealing beauty of this lovely face, proud and unafraid despite her fears, the hand so soft and trusting upon his face, there had something entered into Gary Connell's lonely life that struck deep within him and found a ready response. He swept one arm about the soft, yielding body beneath its wisp of garment, and he swung her behind him as he set himself to meet the attack. And he flashed her a look that must have carried a message, for the trembling lips were framing a ghost of a smile as her eyes met his. Gary's thoughts darted to the gun, but his tightly wrapped pack was in the passage outside. He prayed for a moment's time that he might meet this mob pistol in hand, and he half turned, but no time was given. The leader was shouting orders. His harsh voice resounded in shattering echoes throughout the stone vault, and the horde of blacks surged forward at his command. A mass of lean bodies with faces ugly and brutal, where sleep-filled eyes opened wide and glaring. They crowded upon him, and Gary met the rush with a rain of straight rights and lefts into the nearest faces. He was carried backward to the wall by the weight of their numbers, but he saw some go down for the count. The room seemed filled with leaping, shouting men. Their shrill cries echoed in a tumult of discord, and above all Gary heard the hoarse screams of their leader. There were fists and arms clubbing at his head. He warded them off, then sprang from the wall, leaping outward and sideways, where there was room for free swings of his pounding fists. Another black face went blank under the impact of his blow, a second, and a third. He was giving ground slowly as the others came on. Then beyond the crowding figures he saw one who held a trident spear high in air. The weapon was poised. The metal point shone in the green light. Points that would tear his body to shreds at a single blow. Gary paused but an instant, then opened his clenched fist to clutch the lean neck of an enemy before him. He whirled the man's body and held it as a shield, while he reached vainly to grip at the thrusting spear. Dimly he saw the flash of white and gold where the girl, Lura, threw her own body upon the armed figure and clung in desperation to the shaft of the deadly weapon. Gary hung fast to the struggling body that was a shield. There were other spears now that flashed in the air. He loosed one hand and landed a short jab in the face of a savage whose hands were at his throat. The blow was light, and he was amazed to see the man stagger and fall. There were others who swayed helplessly and stumbled to their knees. Spears rang sharply, clattering upon the stone. They were falling. The body he held went suddenly limp within his arms and sagged heavily to the floor. Gary saw the one who had threatened him drop. He took the girl with him as he fell, and his spear flew wildly from his open hand. Gary was alone, and the enemy was only a tangle of sprawling bodies where the twitchings of an outflung arm marked the last sign of life. He was breathing hard, for some of the enemy's blows had landed, and he staggered as he wiped a trickle of blood from his eyes. No time to figure what this meant, but the blacks were certainly out of it. Beyond the huddled bodies, the tall figure of Orab leapt wildly in air as he sprang forward, and the same instant Gary threw himself between the black menace and the prostrate girl. He staggered again as he landed from his wild leap, and he called for his last reserve of strength to put power behind the blow that he launched for the snarling face above. The heavy scepter swung high and was falling as Gary struck. He saw the blow start, 
saw the fiery arc the jeweled head made in descending like a mace above his head. Then the face of Horab vanished, and the room was a whirling place of flashing red and yellow before blackness blotted it out. Gary awoke to blink stupidly at a green light above him. His head was a blinding, throbbing pain that blurred his thoughts. It cleared slowly. The gleaming figure of a girl was rising from the floor. His aching eyes saw the white of her young body through the dull glow of golden lace. Her eyes came to his, and sharply he realized that this was no dream. This cave whose walls seemed swaying, the face that was staring pitifully at him, and beyond, in a ghastly green light, the dark silhouette of a lean man who bent his pointed head above a chest. Connell's mind was a whirl of snarled thoughts and emotions, of puzzled wonder and fighting rage. Yet strangely, through and above them all was a feeling of pure joy in the message of the eyes in a face that was utterly lovely. The black figure had opened the chest. Gary saw the luminous green about it shot through with the reflected radiance of many gems. Jewels cascaded brilliantly from the lean black hands as they withdrew a golden cord. Part of some gem-encrusted fabric it was that he tore roughly from its rotted fastenings before coming swiftly to the still helpless body of Connell. Gary's struggles were futile. His hands were tied before him. The shooting pain of a prodding spear brought him from the paralyzing numbness that held him, and he came dizzily to his feet. Again the walls whirled, and he would have fallen headlong but for a lithe, soft body that sprang close to throw white arms about him. Through bloodshot eyes he saw Laura of the land of Zahn, with head held high and flashing eyes as she turned squarely to face the savage black, and he heard the stream of strange sentences that she poured protestingly upon him. Her message broke off abruptly. Gary's eyes followed hers to watch a savage king, naked but for the tattered remnants of robes that time had eaten. He was reaching into a casket that had once held kingly raiment, reaching with a lean black hand that brought forth only fragments of purple and crimson cloth that went quickly to dust within his hands. Gary saw the slitted eyes stare in puzzled wonder at the rotted cloth, then glanced sharply and inquiringly about. He saw the black one place a jeweled headdress of barbaric splendor upon his ugly pointed head, then rise and cross slowly to the heap of bodies. Spear in hand, he passed on to the serried rows of caskets. Those nearest were empty, as Gary knew he had seen the eruption of life from within them. Orab, with a growled word, moved on to the other caskets that stretched out across the room. The ugly head stooped. Again the hands reached down to come back this time with an empty, gleaming skull. Gary thought once of his pistol, but knew in the same thought that he could never reach it. The spear of Horab would crash through him at the first movement. He dismissed the thought, forgot it, and forgot all else in the fascination of beholding the sagging lips and the scowling stupefaction on the black face of Horab. And slowly there came to his throbbing brain an explanation. One hundred summers, Lura had said. Horab had meant to sleep for a hundred years, and the machine that was to waken him had failed to function. Ages beyond computing had passed, and these two only, the Black King and the girl, had survived. They had been directly beneath the light. Its flooding energy had brought them safely through the dreamless years. But for the others it had been different. 
Those nearest the light had responded to the vibrating call, but their vitality was gone. Their moment of life was short. As for the hundreds who had felt the light but faintly, the skull told the story. They had died as they slept, died thousands of years ago, and their skeletons were all that remained to mock at their king and the frustration of his plans. But what was the purpose of the long sleep? Lura's touch and her soundless words supplied the answer. Why did he wish this? her mind said, repeating his question. Horab's own country was lost. The yellow ones from across the great water had conquered and overrun it. But Horab had planted the seeds of disease, and the yellow ones must all die in time. Horab is a king and a worker of magic. He is in league with a devil. He learns his magic of him. We of Zahn all feared the magic of Horab. She stopped at the quiver of rock beneath her feet. Gary's mind had cleared, but it was an instant before he knew that the movement was not in his own throbbing head. Then the earth tremor came unmistakably, and his thoughts flashed back to the massive rock above the mouth of the cave. If more quakes were coming, they must get out and do it at once. The black hand of King Horab cast the skull vindictively against the wall, and the clatter of its falling fragments mingled with strange oaths from the savage lips. Then he came toward the two, and Gary searched his mind desperately for some means of escape. The trident spear was aimed, and Gary waited for the throw. He felt, more than saw, the flash of light that was Lura as she sprang for a spear beside the fallen men. An instant, and she was before him, tense and poised, a golden Amazon whose upraised arm and steady eyes checked even Horab in his advance. She spoke to the savage in sharp staccato phrases, but Gary got no meaning from the words. There was a quick interchange between them, vehement protest and shaking of his poised spear on the part of Horab. Lura added a word or two, and she lowered her weapon as Horab did the same. Her head was bowed as she reached to touch Gary's forehead. He sensed a hopeless sorrow that was so plainly hers, but with it he felt a mingling of another emotion that stirred him to the depths of his being. The slim white figure straightened, and the dark eyes squarely upon his when she spoke. "'Listen carefully,' she said. "'It is the last time.' Gary found himself trembling. He was suddenly breathless with emotion. The racking pain in his head had settled to a dull ache, but his brain was clear, and through it were flashing strange thoughts. The threat, the wild adventure itself, they were nothing before the truth that was so plain to him now. He loved this girl. He loved her. And his whole self responded with an inflow of fresh energy at the thought. A stranger from a strange, lost world. But what of it? He loved her. The message from the lips and fingers of the girl broke in upon the thoughts that were crying for expression. You think of me. She smiled with her lips and eyes. I am glad that you do, my dear one. But it is hopeless. Listen, I have promised. Lura has spoken. I will go with Horab to do as he wills. I will go freely, and he will leave you here unharmed. He promises me this. I will go with Horab far across the blue water that surrounds us here. It is an island, as you know, for have you not come here from afar? Gary broke in with a startled exclamation. An island? Water? He closed his lips upon the denial of her words. And you... Lura continued unheeding. 
when we have gone, will return to your own land. But, oh, my dear one, remember always I love you. I have read your thoughts, O oh, bravest and tenderest of men. I loved you from the moment when my eyes opened and found you waiting there. I am telling you now, for I will never see you again. She broke in upon the wild urge of protest that filled his mind. With an imperious gesture, she motioned Horab to discard his spear, as she placed hers beside it on the rocky floor. But she flinched and retreated from the outstretched arms and grasping hands, while Gary Connell struggled in insane frenzy at the cords that bound his wrists. He felt the lean hands of Horab upon him, and the long arms held him in a crushing grip. And he saw the black face laugh evilly at the watching girl, as Horab kicked the spheres over beside the casket where she had been. Gary felt himself raised in air, and he was as helpless as a child in that grasp. An instant later he was thrown heavily to lie bruised and breathless in the metal box where first he had seen Lura's face in wide-eyed awakening. The rasping voice of Horab rose high and shrill. He was shouting triumphantly at the girl while his hands worked to bind Gary's feet. Lura's head and shoulders showed above the casket edge as she circled swiftly to approach from the opposite side and reach a trembling hand that would make the contact necessary for thought transference. Her cruel touch was upon him. Gary ceased his futile struggle while her words came brokenly to his mind. Horeb has tricked us, she cried. He is leaving you here. He will paralyze you with the devil song of the bell, but not to sleep as I did. It will stop on another note. He says you will be always awake, but helpless, thinking, thinking, always. She buried her face in her hands and hid from his gaze the horror that was in her eyes. Gary Connell's straining hands went limp. The terror in the girl's voice struck through his own wild medley of thoughts to make him shudder with realization of the truth. The threat was real. If Horab left the cave and took Lura with him, the two would die in the desert. The black savage would never dare to face this strange new world. And he, Gary, would be here in this cave, in this very coffin, held in a waking death. No one knew he was here. Only by chance would the cave be investigated. And when someone finally came... Gary stared in fascination at the green light. He knew with terrible certainty that whatever help might come would come too late. To lie there, hour after hour, for days, and then for years, waiting, always waiting. And he could never still his thoughts. He had a sickening realization of the thing they would find. A body, his body, and the mind within it utterly insane. The sound of the shrieking bell was in his ears, and his nerves were trembling in response. He saw long arms above the casket, tearing away the figure of a struggling girl, and then he knew he was alone. The sound of the bell rose to the piercing, nerve-shredding scream he had heard before. He must think fast and act, but the numbness of brain and muscle was creeping upon him. He tried to call out, but his throat was tight and would not respond. The echoes died into silence. The vibrations as before passed beyond audible range. He was sinking, sinking. Dimly he felt the casket shaking beneath him. In some distant corner of his mind he knew that the earthquake shocks had turned. Then he heard with ear-splitting plainness the shrieking discord as the tremor shook the vibrating machine to silence. End of when the Mountain Came to Miramar by Charles W. Diffin, Part B. 
Recording by Katherine Russell, Ohio, USA.